Welcome to Life Centered, the podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, Amelia Tracy and I talk with Tariq Al Olemi. I first met Tariq years ago at a biomimicry workshop and have been following his globetrotting career with a sense of wonder. If you follow Tariq on Instagram or Twitter, and I suggest that you do, you begin to realize his passion, energy, and peace towards the world is infectious. With his sister Lena, Tariq is the co-founder of the Bahrain-based Think and Do Tank, 3BL Associates. And as a result, he finds himself squarely at the crossroads of connecting people, organizations, and the natural world for a more peaceful and prosperous future. This has been one of my favorite episodes to edit, in part because every time I listen through the audio, I learn something new. The conversation is rich with links to big projects and ideas that are changing the world. From resources that help social entrepreneurs find a wellspring of well-being, to the emerging legal, social, and business implications of partnering with natural systems like a river or a forest. Enjoy. When do you feel most connected to the world? I think there are two very different kind of moments. Um, one moment is um, actually a little like the image on your podcast um, of uh, me standing at the shore of the ocean or the sea. And I think very specifically, um, something I love to do is when my feet are in the sand, um, the water sort of reaches me deep. Um, I'm taking these deep meditative breaths and I'm watching the sunset. and. For me, there's, also, there's always something so special about um, sort of experiencing that kind of trinity of sort of water, earth, um, of air together, um, but also being witness to this great marvel that is the sun out in the cosmos. And um, for me, that's always very powerful when I need to sort of regenerate and rejuvenate. Um, I, I go back to that shore. Um, and the second is I'm very blessed and lucky to travel um, quite a bit. Um, for work and when I'm traveling out often first thing I do when I reach a place I post a picture and more often than not uh, someone that I've sort of met along the way whether at a conference at work um, through environmental activism will sort of reach out and say you know what I'm in the city let's please meet up and that makes me feel very connected in the sense of no matter what I guess city I'm going to or at least major city yeah there's a friend that I have there Um, even if I've never been to the city before and I was in Ottawa for the first time last week, and it was sort of the same thing. Um, sort of landed, and within an hour, I'd realized that, you know, actually there was people I, I knew and who were friends who were living here, and, uh, and we sort of met up, and it was just it's something that I think been very blessed to experience time and time again. Um, and it makes me feel the world is incredibly small and, and connected. Yeah, there's a lot of things in there that... Um... I can definitely relate to. I know for myself, there's a moment when I get close to the shore or any kind of ocean where I get that smell. And it's kind of like that fresh ocean smell. But you don't get that same smell when you're out on the ocean. You get it when you're sort of inland a little bit. And it's this, you take a deep breath and it's just, I find it so soothing and connecting. Um, You mentioned you take meditative breaths. do you spend time meditating or practicing breathing? I do, um, every day. Um, I, I'm one of those that believes that life should be lived as a meditation. Um, it's easier said than done, obviously. You know, a practice that I've always tried to bring in is, uh, you know, how do you take 
these meditators brass to do meditation not only when you're sort of sitting down in a quiet environment or indeed just by the shore but you know how do you do that when you're washing the dishes um, how do you do that when you're sort of walking to the airport and uh, when I sort of have that time to myself yeah I'll often try to either take sort of walking meditation uh, sort of steps if I have sort of the time and not in a rush to go anywhere um, it's something as well we do quite often uh, when I'm gathering with fellow change makers um, and trying to start our meetings actually um, through a small meditation um, you know in addition to just a regular uh, meditation practice so yeah it's something that's sort of very core and vital for me I love that I love that. I, I've been moving in that direction myself as well, which is, you know, <laughs> maybe two years ago, I would, if I didn't meditate in the day, I would just pull my hair out and, <laughs> you know, oh, I didn't meditate today, you know, um, I'm failing, right? Um, and now it's more of like a, oh, how can I have an awareness in my life that elicits the same uh, feeling or response as when I'm sitting down? Um, yeah. or walking or whatever the meditation is. Uh, I wonder if you have any tricks or tools or maybe a great new mala or something that you're excited about as you integrate um, your meditation practice into your kind of regular life right now. Yeah, there's been a few tools we've tried as almost, uh, I guess, a gateway, um, something I've done quite a lot, or sort of tea meditations, um, um, and even coffee meditations if people are so inclined um, you know we're in this uh, the Starbucks generation we want everything sort of fast we drink our lattes fast our tea fast um, and there's just something very simple about saying okay you have 40 or 50 minutes just to enjoy the single cup of tea um, and just taking the time to savor it and experience it um, something else that was also kind of inspired by the um, sort of biomimicry training we did, um, you know, there's this exercise where we are blindfolded and sort of taken out into nature and we get to sort of feel uh, different parts of nature. Um, and with the sort of trees, you get to taste uh, um, sort of where it's appropriate to different plants um, and sort of get connected. And something we sort of added to that was um, integrating with a gratitude walk and where for the duration of at least... 15 or 20 minutes, someone who's blindfolded, going out into nature, just keeps repeating this mantra, I am grateful for, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for. And just sort of 15 to 20 minutes of gratitude, I think, is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever, um, I've ever felt. Um, and I've also experienced with uh, fellow human beings. Because after sort of five minutes, you know, you're sort of thinking about it consciously, and then we get into the sixth, seventh, eighth minute, it starts to go into the subconscious. And um, and I think what you're truly grateful for in life comes out and it's, uh, it's a beautifully, beautiful bonding experience um, as well. But, uh, but yeah, those are sort of some, some sort of strategies that we kind of use every day and sort of quite regularly, um, especially for people who aren't used to meditation, um, who aren't used to bringing themselves back to sort of that core into their heart. Tariq, another thing that I... I uh, uh, wanted to jump into is the travel that you do and maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you're traveling so much and some of the work you do that brings you around the world um, so just recently um, uh, you have several projects going on but if there's one that you're really excited about or that you want to talk about that like what took you to Ottawa 
So um, I do travel quite a bit. I feel somewhat guilty um, sometimes, especially my carbon footprint isn't uh, isn't the best um, personally. Um, I guess the umbrella, um, and it's maybe to give just the listeners a bit of a sort of a more overview. A lot of the work um, that I do, and also with my peers, goes towards building um, sort of healthier, um, more compassionate communities of purpose. Um, a lot of the work that we do as well is towards making an effort towards assisting the reconciliation between um, humanity and, and the rest of nature. Um, the main umbrella that I do kind of that work in is a uh, social enterprise I set up with my sister um, called 3BL Associates. So we're a, a sort of people and planet strategy consultancy um, and think do tank. Um, we set up with the purpose of trying to reimagine uh, the Middle East um, and then later then more broadly trying to accelerate sort of global sustainable development through different multi-stakeholder collaborations. So um, we work on sort of nine of the sustainable development goals sort of directly um, and all 17 indirectly. Um, my travels vary depending on sort of what we uh, what we're sort of focused on. Um, I'd say the reason as well that we're, um, it may seem we're quite dispersed is we're very, very much generalists. We know um, a little about a lot of different issues. Um, and I think what we're very good at um, is, uh, again, being that connecting force, um, being those fungal networks, so to speak, um, and, and trying to make an ecosystem out of a forest. And um, so I was in Ottawa recently for a uh, UNESCO conference on education for sustainable development and global citizenship education um, and I co-chair one of their initiatives on education for sustainable development which is basically um, trying to bring in um, environmental literacy, um, climate change literacy, um, sort of values-based approaches into um, sort of formal and informal uh, classrooms around the world. Um, yeah. And, uh, and under 3BL, um, we have a number of Think Do Tank um, sort of initiatives, so whilst we do our consultancy. Um, we have sort of a project based on uh, something called Public-Planet Partnerships, which we're particularly excited about. Um, we have a project as well on, um, on the topic we were just sort of talking about, well-being. Um, we do work on things like sort of diabetes and health. Um, we do work on um, sort of social entrepreneurship for young people. Um, on climate change um, so it's quite actually on the surface quite dispersed um, but they're all indeed very uh, very connected and we see them as very connected um, so yeah my travels uh, um, uh, my travels uh, are quite a lot depending on yeah what I'm sort of going for because a lot of the work we're, we're doing is quite global and regional um, apart from just uh, just barring it's very interesting that connection between the that you're trying to make an ecosystem out of a out of a, out of a bunch of trees yes. or out of a forest you said it more beautifully than i just did but that idea of that you are really trying to make those connections transfer that that value between these different often disparate groups and really showing how connected the world is is that something that you set out to do or that evolve as as what you realized you had the capacity for? It was something that was very much an evolution. I think when we started, um, and I mean, just to give a context as well, of, you know, we started in, in Bahrain and in, in the Gulf, and um, things are very disconnected here when it comes to um, sort of social environmental issues. Um, we have, 
I think one of the um, highest number of ministries per capita. Um, there's sort of a governmental ministry for everything. Um, I'm used to sit in into different sort of ministry meetings and government meetings and private sector meetings, whether it was on sort of diabetes, on transportation, on climate change, on energy, on agriculture. And we'd realize they'd be talking about pretty much the same things, the same kind of challenges. Um, and we'd say, oh, by the way, you know that, you know, your colleagues in this, uh, this institution, um, this organization, this ministry are sort of working on or trying to solve similar problems. Have you connected with them? Um, often the answer was no. Um, and we kind of realized just how disconnected um, that sort of sphere of sustainable development um, and development in general was. Um, but also how quickly we were able to realize those interconnections, um, how we were able to, um, I guess, translate it as well. Um, you know, for someone working in the healthcare sector and diabetes, on you know, why do they need to integrate um, climate change issues and transportation issues and food system issues into their solutions? And they'd never solve um, sort of the issues of diabetes uh, if if they didn't, and sort of vice versa um, for for biologists and and those in sort of different climate change spheres and trying to understand how you know effective health policy is naturally effective climate policy. Um, and what we found we're very good at doing is you know, taking this little knowledge that we had um, about sort of diabetes, about climate change, and just knowing enough to make those um, interconnections. And we found that we were just very good at that. Um, and that's sort of how it sort of evolved. Um, and, and then later when we took up um, sort of biomimicry practices, it kind of just made sense. Um, like, you know, this is actually how it's supposed to work. And, um, we're supposed to be building these systems and you do need these uh, sort of keystone species and you do need these networks and we can assist to um, yeah, serve that role. Yeah, and I mean, for those who, who maybe aren't familiar with the metaphor, the fungal network is one of my favorite things to introduce to business people to talk about because the idea inherently is that you have a system that's often hidden, but it's a, it's a system that connects these different elements of the forest. And because it's there, it actually increases the entire productivity and well-being of the whole forest by sometimes, you know, 200% or more. And it allows a much higher performing system as a whole than if all the independent entities are acting in their own accord. One of the things I found interesting was that it's you and your sister who are doing this. Yes. Um, I, I love my family, but I, I wonder if we would be good at working together and building a business. Do you guys separate out tasks? Is she um, brilliant at something and you're brilliant at something else? How do you guys uh, make that work? Um, I think she's brilliant at everything. Um, uh, <laughs> that helps <laughs> that helps um, and that's what she tells me to tell people no I'm kidding um, uh, you can cut that part out uh, <laughs> no. um, so we get asked that a lot um, you know how it is to work as siblings I think I'm very very blessed um, uh, to work with my sister um, it works really well because we have very similar values um, and that's something that's difficult to find um as, uh, as well in, in sort of our, our location. Um, I think we also had similar but different sort of upbringings, different sort of streams. She was educated uh, in sort of communications first and then 
um, and then peace and sort of conflict resolution. Uh, my background originally was actually in finance. Um, you know, she's a morning person, I'm a night person. Um, she's, uh, um, she's also, I think like me, looks at things very holistically, but in different ways. Um, um, she's uh, um, my sister, so Lena, she uh, um, very much is also inspired by Buddhist philosophies as well. Um, and that's something we also bring into our work. Um, and it's a real joy, um, I think, for anyone who's able to do it, um, to work with their siblings. And it's something that's very common, um, I think, in the Arab region specifically, with family business and something that uh, um, I think we also have a heritage for. Um, so I think it was a little bit easier to find uh, sort of similar models of where um, I think siblings, uh, siblings could work together. Um, and I think inherently as, uh, as brother and sister, you have a lot of trust. Um, and that's sometimes uh, very difficult to find, uh, especially in the, in the business world. Um, I think there's something very unique about just being able to trust someone uh, yeah, wholeheartedly in, in sort of your projects and what you're doing um, and to be very truthful to you. So, uh, um, so if you're able to make it work, um, it's a real blessing. One of the things that you mentioned there uh, several times is a pursuing different elements from the environment to climate change to peace to to diabetes and why drawn to diabetes um, in particular so that's something that was just very much present um, in terms of um, sort of one of the social issues we face both in Bahrain and across the Gulf so we have um, the highest prevalence of diabetes per capita so the top um, and the top six um, worst countries in the world for sort of diabetes prevalence per capita are all sort of Gulf countries, which are sort of Saudi, Bahrain, Oman, UAE, uh, Kuwait. Um, and what was interesting for me um, as well when you're sort of looking at the diabetes epidemic is just how interconnected that issue was um, to the other issues as well. Um, that we also as a region and also those countries are some of the highest um, countries in terms of emissions per capita. Um, that were also one of the highest uh, sort of food import dependent countries, um, water scarce countries, um, countries with some of the um, sort of the most dependent on sort of cars as well. Um, so I think one, it was just a very prevalent issue and the, the deeper we sort of dug into it and I mean, I have a lot of family who are diabetics and I sort of saw the effect directly and, and the power of education as well to um, to help manage um, and prevent it. Um, but yeah, that, you know, something like diabetes, which is just a forefront social issue is so deeply interconnected to um, everything as well. Um, and that, that story wasn't being told and the uh, approaches as well um, on healthcare uh, weren't taking that sort of holistic sphere. Um, and we could only see that very clearly because we were operating these sort of different fields and we could make, uh, we could make those connections. So is that, a, is that still an active uh, part of, of what you're working on in terms of helping healthcare consider diabetes in a more holistic way? Um, that is something we're, we're actively work on. And we've also um, branched out a little bit also to look at well-being in, uh, more holistically mm. in general. Um, so recently, um, we, along with um, four other organizations, Europe uh, launched an initiative called Recipes for Wellbeing, 
Um, so this is uh, very much looking at um, well-being for change makers. Um, and sort of these change makers, um, and I'm sure like yourselves, who um, tend to often put others before themselves, um, who work themselves like crazy, um, often burn out, um, often need to take uh, the space to sort of rejuvenate um, as well. And, and this is something that, um, particularly in the younger generation, um, so for those who are sort of social entrepreneurs, 30 and under, those who have been, even at a young age, doing sort of their work for about 10 years, um, really looking at things from a heropreneurial mindset um, and, uh, and something that's obviously very understandable in our modern world because, you know, we face these global crises and, um, and we say as social entrepreneurs, you know, if, if not us, then who, and if not now, when? Um, but it does take its toll um, physically, spiritually, um, emotionally. Um, and that sort of sphere of well-being is something that we've also tried to uh, try to look to um, and try to uh, try to address um, both through sort of different types of retreats that we do and also on online um, platforms. So, so yeah, we do the diabetes work still, and we sort of tried to branch out as well a, a little bit further because um, even with the diabetes crisis um, and epidemic, even if we're able to find a biotech solution for it tomorrow. Um, the, the values that led to the diabetes epidemic are still uh, going to be prevalent. Um, and that's still prevalent in the way that we um, treat nature, and that's also still prevalent also mm-hmm. the way we treat uh, ourselves a lot of the time. Is there a correlation um, based on what you've found? And I love this recipes um, for well-being site. It's really sweet. Um, <clears throat> between the diabetic um, rate where you are and kind of uh, what, from what I can perceive is kind of an accelerated development schedule that's happened there for the last several decades at least. Um, yeah, absolutely. And quite, uh, quite directly. Um, so we are, um, in the least gen- genetically predisposed, um, of course, genetics does play a part. Um, but also particularly when it comes to type two diabetes, um, um, it is lifestyle. It's choices, um, and you know we always say that oil has been our biggest blessing and uh, our curse in the region, um, both in terms of you know, 150 years ago. Uh, you know, if you look at sort of Bedouin communities and uh, desert-dwelling communities, um, um, you know they're able to come out of poverty. They're able to build sort of huge cities as well because of that um, to afford. Uh, cars to afford a wonderful lifestyle and in, in many cases um, relatively to what sort of our ancestors uh, were able to experience and you know the choices that we are uh, that we are able to make um, have expanded and we often unfortunately choose for like, some of the more unhealthier choices um, and again that's not just with the food that we eat um, it's the type of transportation systems that we build um, it's um, it's the lifestyle that uh, that we choose uh, each and every single day, and that same lifestyle leads to um, a, a diabetes kind of epidemic. Um, but equally, that same lifestyle leads to a lot of consumption um, and food waste. Um, that lifestyle also leads to excessive carbon emissions as well, um, and it's uh, something that 
you've sort of rightly said, has been spurred on by development in the past few decades. And our challenge now in that transition away from fossil fuel societies is, um, uh, you know, transitioning away not only um, to sort of knowledge-based societies, but also to uh, um, healthier societies as well. Um, um, and it, that's able to make those lifestyle choices. Tariq, do you find um, you find yourself inspired by wisdom from um, more traditional or ancient knowledge, like like the Bedouin? How much do you look to? I guess part of the question is how much do you look to different cultures, different people, and then also to nature, and do you blend those? Yes, um, that's one of my great passions um, in life. Um, I am uh, I am obsessed about the intersection of sort of theology and ecology. Um, my my entrance into I guess uh, issues like biomimicry, um, and I think why I was first uh, so taken aback by it um, was actually because of the connection with ancient knowledge, uh, even in the region um, with, uh, with the Sufi community, so sort of the Islamic mysticism. Um, and the communities, uh, you know, there is always a very beautiful culture of looking to nature uh, for wisdom. Um, you know, many of the societies previously used to say that you should read nature as if it is scripture. Um, and we have a very strong tradition uh, also in Islam that you know, even if you know a camel and the camel's wisdom um, is far more than you can find in ten thousand books. Um, and there is also this concept of, um, you know, the beauty of the beloved, the beauty of the divine, is is really the true, uh, the, the true teacher, the true book, the true classroom. Um, and what I think connected me, as well to things like biomimicry, this was, you know, there's this beautiful philosophy, this beautiful wisdom that really touches my heart. And this is actually a way to live it. Um, this is actually a very concrete way to. Um, to, uh, to implement it. Um, and from sort of that segue, I've been very interested in looking to sort of other schools of thought and ancient wisdom. Um, so pulling from sort of Buddhist wisdom, uh, Kabbalah as well, um, um, looking at uh, sort of Baha'i approaches, um, looking at again, Catholic approaches and looking with Pope, uh, Pope Francis as well as looking um, out with his Laudato Si with the uh, um, his call for uh, for ecological action, um, and for me, I think that's where I feel most comfortable, actually, um, uh, in sort of those in between, uh, sort of both the ancient and the modern, um, and able to bring those two worlds uh, two worlds together. And I think one of the greatest challenges of our time is uh, trying to take all this beautiful ancient wisdom um, and trying to make it uh, relevant to our modern world. Um, trying to translate it and trying to actually, um, again, very much like meditation, um, not something that we just read in books, um, but something that uh, um, that we can make uh, sort of scripture uh, real um, um, in, uh, when it comes to sort of that connection with nature and how our ancestors used to see the world. And I imagine that the insight that these philosophies, the, these religions that value nature, that look to it, and then the art of biomimicry, putting those together allows you to bridge with lots of different kinds of people, um, people who might not appreciate one side or the other, but can come together around looking to the natural world and maybe realize that that's a, 
a central point for people. Do you, do do you find that to be true? I do. And I think what's in a lot of my biomimicry trainings and workshops that I give, um, one of the comments that I get quite often, um, are people coming to me later and saying, um, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, uh, but this is probably the most, uh, spiritual thing I think I've come across. Um, and I always find that really fascinating. Um, and it's something I've seen many, many times, um, even when um, I was studying biomimicry, um, you know, especially when you have a group of scientists together um, who don't necessarily have, I think, a gateway to look at necessarily sort of ancient knowledge um, as well, because of the stigma that's associated maybe around it, um, because of, again, many different reasons, because they don't believe in the religious side of it. But then there's still this wonderful wisdom that's there. Um, and I think biomimicry is, is wonderful um, to make that bridge, um, to say that, you know, this is a, um, a channel in which you can uh, apply this ancient wisdom, which you can learn from this ancient wisdom um, in a way that I think applies to um, everyone. Like, do you have, um, were you raised in a specific religious tradition or are these kinds of things that you've picked up and investigated on your own as a sort of more or less adult? I was very, I think, lucky um, I think growing up. Um, we were raised in a, I mean, a Muslim household, but I went to an international school. Um, we had a, a lot of different religions. It was something that was very, um, I think, natural for me to, to come across. Even as a, um, a young boy, I was singing Christmas, Christmas carols at our school concerts, <laughs> um, which I, you know, later in life, I thought that was pretty strange for... Um, for a little kid um, from Bahrain to be singing Silent Night. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it, I mean, but later I just was very thankful for that upbringing. Um, it just made me very open to, I think, to learning, to seeing the beauty in all these different, um, I think, traditions. Um, and it was something that came, I think, a little bit later in life, um, where I had the, I think, the courage to act upon sort of what I felt in my heart and just to dive myself into, um, I think all to these different traditions and and uh, different forms of knowledge. Do you feel like you're living, you know, your own truth? Or I don't know. That's kind of a weird saying. But how do you? I guess where did you find your courage? Is my question, or or is it something you struggle with? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, I'm trying. I would say um, I'm definitely trying. Um, and encourage as a daily choice um, as well. Mm. But I think in my situation, um, so just to give you maybe a little bit of my, my sort of my deeper background, um, you know, I went to university um, studying a hardcore finance degree. Um, I studied investment and risk management. Um, three years sort of of that in the UK system taught me that the last thing I want to do um, with my life um, is work in the field of investment and, and financial risk management. Uh, <laughs> it was a very long lesson. Um, but also after that experience, I, I felt that, you know, whilst I tried to utilize sort of the time in between and a lot of sort of social work, environmental work, um, but I felt that almost three years um, were taken from my life um, that I could have spent a lot better. Um, and I think I've thought about a bit more consciously about 
what really mattered to me. Um, I could have either sort of avoided or had made a better choice. Um, and I sort of made a promise to myself uh, kind of after I finished university not to have that feeling again, um, not to sort of have that feeling that I've wasted, um, sort of wasted my time on something that I didn't really care about, something I didn't really value, um, and um, something I didn't really believe in. Um, so everything that I do kind of passes through those sort of thresholds. Um, um, because yeah, I mean, life is precious and time is very precious and we don't know how long we'll have. And, uh, um, I think my, don't know if I'd call it courage, but my drive also comes from, I think from that. I would be very interested in understanding or getting my hands around an understanding of how you, um, integrate biomimicry holistically into your life, into your business practices, like what that looks like for you, because everybody has a different way of doing it, um, or maybe a story about how that has come about, whatever pops up in your mind, but um, holistically yeah. what, what it is to apply biomimicry to your world. So we operate in many different worlds. Um, I would say when it comes to, and I think we, we use biomimicry the most when it comes to education, um, I think it is uh, one of the most underused and also powerful modes of education. Um, so when we do a lot of um, sort of UN work as well, um, we bring this in. And what I love about biomimicry um, as a tool for education um, is just how it lends itself to integrate um, many other different um, streams and practices. So I'm a, I'm a member of the International Big History Association. Um, and you know, often in sort of biomimicry uh, workshops, um, we would look at sort of the development of the earth, um, and you know, bringing in big history into that as a sort of a larger spectrum, as a larger part of the curriculum. I'm really diving deep into the development of the earth is um, something that biomimicry beautifully lends itself to when it comes to values, um, especially when you're talking about indeed tapping from ancient wisdom. Um, and uh, um, the values that uh, we, we used to um, uh, exhibit, the values that are still within us, biomimicry lends itself beautifully to, I think is a tool for, especially in a world that is uh, increasingly going um, to populist movements and right-wing and national movements, um, biomimicry is a fantastic global citizenship tool, I think, as well, um, to teach what it means to be a, a global citizen, to be an Earth citizen as well. Um, um, in addition to, of course, uh, going into different streams and integrating into like, sort of medicine and architecture um, and transportation systems. Um, so for me, education is that one big aspect. Um, in our consultancy work, consultancy work as well, um, we, we have a, a challenge in, in the Middle East that you know, there's, not a, there's not necessarily an innovation culture to start with. Um, uh, we have the lowest patents, I think, um, uh, usually per year um, for any region in the world. Um, and we're a lot better at implementing innovation, um, sort of using already existingly developed innovation rather than sort of developing it. So we always have a challenge when it comes to the consultancy work and um, also especially telling our clients if their strategies have been inspired by ants. Um, <laughs> so we try, to, uh, we try to bring that in um, still without necessarily making it so. Um, so obvious, um, um, as well in our consultancy work and trying to do that a bit more, uh, a bit more subtly. Um, 
when it comes to um, something that we're trying to spend a lot of time on now um, is an initiative we've launched called the sort of public planet partnerships. Yes. Um, so this is uh, something which has been kind of a culmination of a lot of a lot of my thoughts on biomimicry, um, but also a lot of our work when it comes to sort of international UN negotiations, when it comes to working with the private sector, um, when it comes to sort of dealing with organizations like the World Economic Forum, um, um, and working with sort of scientists and designers and change makers. And, um, you know, one of the things we, we really focus on in our consultancy work is collaboration. Um, is sort of building these different collaborative and system level partnerships and whether it was sitting at a UN negotiation on climate change or whether it was in a public-private partnership um, between sort of government and a company when we often talked about our, our social and economic partners they were always human partners um, nature would never have a seat at the table um, and something that I always thought about was you know what would that look like um, what would that look like if nature indeed have a seat at the table at the UN? And what would it look like if we indeed tried to uh, um, sort of form a, uh, a partnership with the ocean? Um, or if we tried to do a, uh, um, a sort of a free trade agreement um, with the forest? Um, or if we tried to create a relationship um, of, sort of, with microbial communities to scale our strategies? Um, and it also came from what I kept seeing, um, especially in the world of business, was the you know the the profit from destroying nature is almost always privatized, um, and the cost is almost always socialized. And I was very discouraged by how we were dealing with um, dealing with nature, and I saw a lot of parallels, especially coming from sort of this region of colonialism. And actually, just how sort of the human world ended the age of colonialism, or is trying to at least, I mean, how we use countries for the basis of exploiting resources, and eventually started to move to a sort of a age of relations of globalization, international cooperation, that we should be making that same transition when it comes to nature, when it comes to natural capital, um, and that we really need to look at nature as a, a sort of a true partner and, and a collaborator. Um, you know, I gave this um, this example as well, sort of last week at the UN. Um, when they were talking about different types of partnerships, and particularly it was uh, it was International Women's Day, um, and they were talking about um, uh, you know the potential that if we did advance gender equality to its full potential, it could add sort of twenty eight trillion dollars to the world uh, the world economy by twenty twenty five, which is sort of the equivalent of the Chinese and U.S. economies combined. Um, and then you know the thought I bring in is. Uh, that's it's wonderful, and to add to that, um, how many opportunities and trillions are we losing out in economic and social and ecological opportunities by not forging partnerships with 99% of other species? Um, if what we're saying is that we are losing out um, not by integrating a sort of gender equality, then um, then what about other species? And, um, so, sort of recently, we've developed, um, along with a social enterprise based in Paris called SoScience, um, something called Public Planet Partnerships, which is kind of this framework to um, try to assist the public. So, in our definition, sort of business, public servants, chain makers, innovators, to um, 
try and find mutually beneficial partnerships with sort of the planet. And that has been sort of a lot of the convergence of a lot of our thoughts when it comes to sort of how do you deal with nature on a legal level, a consciousness level, a values level as well. Um, so, so that's something we're sort of actively working on at the moment. What if we had a free trade agreement with the forest? Yeah. is a very powerful idea that I think gets to the heart of something that is often overlooked in biomimicry, which is, you know, it can be a source for innovation, a source for thinking about things, but re- reconciling with nature, to borrow one of your key phrases, how do we, how do we form those in a very formal way? Um, what if there was a seat at the UN or what if a business did have a, a relationship in contractual agreement with a forest? I, I, I think getting to a legal financial framework seems like a very sensible way to approach this. And so thank you for talking about that at the UN and, and around the world. Mm, yeah. Thank you. And, um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's something we're, we're trying to figure out and these are not easy questions to ask. Um, uh, but it's something that's definitely um, providing a lot of sort of inspiration and, and energy every day. Um, I have for a long time been thinking that none of these problems can be solved without more um, global organizations like the UN, right? Like we need, mm-hmm. we need more more organizations to create a UN for the UN. <laughs> Not to make things way more complicated, right? But, but to, to um, leverage power differently, right? Um, and so what would it look like if uh, there was a UN solely devoted to uh, partnerships with the planet on behalf of humanity? Well, I think it's... I think that's the vision as well on a global level, but it's also something I think on a, um, even on a local level, when I look at, um, and also one of the things that very much resonated with your podcast and this focus on life-centered design is, um, you know, the, the approach of human-centered design is so prevalent. Um, and it has taken us far um, into sort of many wonderful solutions, but, um, I think indeed, even on a sort of a local level, um, on a sort of a business level, um, you know, taking that human centric approach, I think, um, and the solutions that come out of it often miss out on the opportunity um, to integrate sort of nature um, or natural capital, if you want to look at that way, as an innovation partner. And I think one of the key challenges that I think a lot of people overlook is that that human centered approach later becomes the cause of even more problems. Um, because you haven't t- taken um, sort of a life-centered approach or a planet-centered approach. And um, what we're trying to do is looking at, again, sort of small-scale uh, sort of solutions as well, where that can sort of be integrated, um, and also to the larger scale. Um, and we've been doing a lot of research on um, different innovations and businesses that have kind of done this well um, on small levels and large levels. And I mean, one of the, I think, famous examples um, and also a very long-standing example, um, I think on a bit of a larger level is even looking at sort of New York City um, and the watershed agreement uh, there that has sort of facilitated this um, natural uh, perlocation of water through microorganisms. Um, And one of the things we're looking at is that um, this is at a cost of around 100 million per year versus 6 to 10 billion per year. 
uh, that would be required to build a water filtration plant um, if they weren't sort of partnering with these microorganisms. Um, and then even sort of to the future, um, you know, there's a wonderful project called the Ocean Cleanup Project. I don't know if you would have heard of it before. Um, and it's this concept of trying to form this collaboration with the ocean. Um, that we have the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and if we partnered with the waves um, of the ocean, we we're able to remove about half um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch at about uh, 10 years at a fraction of the cost. And we can mention as well sort of examples from Aboriginal communities um, um, across sort of architecture and, and beyond. Um, and I think what's exciting about the idea is that a lot of people are kind of stumbling across it uh, sometimes um, and integrating to their solutions, but not making that conscious effort. Um, and I think certainly if you don't come from a sort of a background of ecological literacy and are not able to make that connection, um, you know, how do you, um, how do you make planet-centered design? How do you make uh, life-centered design indeed uh, just as prevalent of a paradigm for the UN indeed to, to work uh, based on for uh, large companies to use instead of typical public-private partnerships as well with government, uh, but even on local innovation level. Tariq, where could people find out more about <clears throat> public-planet partnerships if they were interested? Um, so we um, have recently just completed our pilot projects, um, which we did at the um, UN Climate Change Summit in, in Morocco. Um, and we will be launching the website um, uh, on publicplanetpartnerships.com uh, by the end of this month. Um, and we're going to be sort of launching these series of frameworks and tools which people can play around with. Um, and again, it's something that's in um, continual uh, development. So, um, so yeah, if you search sort of public planet partnerships online, publicplanetpartnerships.com, they'll be able to uh, sort of find it. Excellent. Can't wait. What is one of the most harmful things we are doing today, but we don't realize? Who's your definition of we? Interesting. <laughs> um, in it in the way I. I, I thought of it as it could be anything. It could be you. What is one of the things that you're not doing? But we, the I, humans maybe is yeah. is one, um, uh, the broadest concept that I would go to with. Or it could be you. You could you could narrow that down to uh, specific um, groups or different kinds of people or, or what is you know. Um, something that's going on yeah. I, I always found it fascinating that a lot of times it's the things that we think are fantastic or the things that we think we're so smart about that actually in reality is uh, probably not the best for us um i think the first thing that comes to mind mostly because i was talking about it yesterday um i think one of the things we're doing and not realizing it i think enough is how we actually tell our stories um a narrative, particularly when it comes to describing our relationship, um, I think, with nature. I think often the, the language that we use, um, I think both in media, um, particularly in the tech world as well, um, and um, I think online, I see a lot of language of disconnection and, and separation. Um, and one of the things I think a lot about is this concept of um, ontological design. Um, so, sort of for the listeners, this concept of that, you know, what we design designs us back, 
um, you know, if we build the city, uh, the city will design us back as well as human beings. And equally, um, you know, we write and share stories, but uh, those stories will write us back as well. Um, you know, and this feedback loop was um, described by I think, the Canadian philosopher uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan, <coughs> who's talking about, you know, what we become what we behold and we shape our tools and stories and they shape us. Um, and I've always been very careful about the stories that we also tell and how we frame our stories. And um, I mentioned this because uh, I was reading an article, um, I think it was two days ago, that was uh, written by Bill Gates um, instead of his Gates notes. And uh, the headline for this, uh, this article was beating nature at its own game. Um, I sort of looked at it, I was like, okay, that's an interesting uh, headline um, uh, from Bill Gates. And I sort of read the article and essentially the premises that he was meeting with um, sort of a Caltech professor um, who's working on turning sort of sunlight into fuel power um, for sort of cars, trains, and airplanes. Um, and that uh, this, you know, this kind of solar fuel will be one of the miracles. And it was interesting to hear um, from the Caltech professor, sort of he was quoted later to say that um, we want to create this solar fuel, uh, this solar fuel inspired by what nature does, in the same way that the man with the aircraft inspired by birds that fly. Um, and you know, but you don't build an airplane out of feathers, and we're not going to build uh, artificial photosynthetic systems out of chlorophyll and living systems because we can sort of do better than that and do better than nature. Um, and then sort of I understood a little bit more um, sort of where they were coming from with that headline. Um, but also it's something that I think people do quite often. I think if you start with the premise of beating nature at its own game, that doesn't leave room for creating a relationship with nature. Um, that doesn't leave room, I think, to value nature in the way that nature deserves. Um, um, and I think we're constantly bombarded with this um, language of sort of disconnection. Um, I think in the media as well, when it, particularly when it comes to our relationship with nature. And, um, I mean, of course, they're doing wonderful work. Um, this is not to, uh, um, to criticize the work they were doing, but it's something I just thought it was interesting in how they kind of framed the, the narrative. Yes, I, I saw the same article and the same thought popped into my head um, in terms of, oh, well, that's an interesting way to name it. Um, and you do see this a lot. And it, 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 it was something that I think was first pointed out to me by Janine Benyus, right, who mm. she saw this as well as a separation. And, and that became um, an undercurrent that definitely has hasn't changed and in fact has probably gotten worse with the idea with clickbait and news and trying to get people's attention um it sounds better like oh we're gonna beat nature man versus nature rather than maybe being a little bit more accurate or or, or being more factual with with what's really going on and that in fact the scientists who do this work often have a deep loving respect and appreciation and empathy for nature and that's why they're good at their work is because they love it and they're studying it and they're spending their lives okay. reflecting with these different biological entities so that they can learn from them um but then when reporters get a hold of it they they, they do they they twist that story in a, in a very different way yeah and i think um i think that that effect of you know someone who's who's young and just constantly bombarded i think with, with that narrative um, i think worries me um, 
Mm-hmm. Like it worries me the values that people are um, going to be growing up with, and, and I think later indeed the the solutions and the world that they're trying to uh, trying to build. Um, so yeah, I think that's something I think we're not uh, realizing or we're pointing out enough. So a catchphrase that um, I try not to spend too, too much time thinking about, but the Internet of Things. I picked up this book the other day, and I, I have this like problem opening it up, but. It's basically somebody from MIT who wrote about the Internet of Things that I assume will be fairly informative. But I've been really like trying to meditate on, is there a place for the Internet of Things? Like clearly there is because it it exists. Other people have decided there are. But um, in a world where we're in right relationship with ourselves and all of the other species that are non-human, is there a place for the Internet of Things, and what would it be? Yeah, I think the I think the the premise of the Internet of Things as well, in terms of when it talks about relationship, um, is that the Internet of Things is um, relationship between people and people, people and things, and things and things, mm-hmm. um, which I always find really interesting because, um, again, there is no room for or on the surface, it doesn't allow room for um, yeah, sort of ecology. Um, and that's always been one of my I think, criticisms of, uh, um, of sort of the narrative. Um, uh, I think there is incredible potential if it's channeled right. Um, I know a lot of uh, fantastic entrepreneurs working on um, the Internet of Things related um, sort of startups. And um, one of the things I'm always taken aback by is how little um, how little ecological literacy is brought into those sort of conversations and how little ecological design or ecological-minded, um, uh, um, I think, solutions as well are, are, brought into, uh, um, are brought into those kind of conversations. Um, and I think we're missing out on the potential of what it can mean. Um, I think one of, one of the more interesting examples when it comes to, a, I'd say, a, not the best example of public planet partnerships, but definitely a partnership um, was uh, through Cisco um, and their Internet of Things platform. Um, and they had done this experiment in London where they hooked up uh, pigeons um, with these air quality monitoring uh, devices. Um, connected, uh, connected, of course, to the Internet of Things. And uh, they had sent them off out in London um, basically to monitor air quality. And this, uh, this had a huge media buzz. Um, the um, sort of the data that the pigeons were gathering sort of flying around with these air monitors in their back was sort of um, tweeted back. Uh, people could uh, sort of follow it on Twitter. Um, sort of this data could be accessed. And I thought that was a very interesting example of how you could start to look at this wider sphere of the Internet of Things and see, okay, how... How does it kind of work when it comes to sort of nature and uh, when it comes to other species and how we can integrate that, but also how we can help that survey purpose in this case um, to sort of monitor air quality in a more, um, I think, efficient way, um, but also in a way that made people notice um, um, as well just how bad the air quality uh, was. Um, but yeah, I can I can very much relate in terms of the, the hesitancy, um, I think, as well. Well, the last example, the pigeon example that you gave, just in addition to getting air quality data, we're we're creating a new reason to have to be in right relationship with pigeons, right? So it's a new feedback loop that um, could potentially allow us to 
you know, draw the same conclusions. Yeah, and I think there's a similar example as well that goes a step further um, when it comes to vultures in Peru, um, which I found fascinating in this idea of how you can also change the perception of a, a sort of particular species. And what the, the Peruvian government did was um, um, sort of they looked at, there was a lot of trash um, and so I think the city of, uh, I think it was Lima, um, and the vultures would congregate um, onto these different sort of trash heaps. And this is something that was seen as a nuisance for people, not only the trash, but also the vultures. Um, and they did something very similar. They, they attached, um, uh, I think it was sort of camera monitors um, to the vultures and essentially let the vultures go. Um, and the vultures would be essentially mapping out the areas in which there were trash in the city. Um, mm -hmm. And vultures were suddenly seen as something that was sort of beneficial, um, something that assisted human beings um, as well. And they did it as sort of a pilot project that was quite, uh, I think, quite successful. And, um, and yeah, I think absolutely it's this feedback loop and it's changing this kind of narrative as well. Tariq, is there a media, a book, a documentary right now that you're very excited about? I'd say something that maybe it's, uh, it's still uh, probably came out last, and towards the end of last year, um, Planet Earth uh, Series 2 is something I've been geeking out on. Um, it's just, I think, on, I think on BBC America now as well. I think particularly there's an episode on cities which really captivated me. And I thought it was super interesting that sort of for the first time, data about David Attenborough and the team really looking at cities as a part of nature as an ecosystem within nature as a as a built environment in which nature intrinsically sort of exists and needs to operate in um, and look at all these cool examples of how uh, sort of these different species have been adapting to cities um, how city life has been beneficial for quite a few species as well um, and how they've been how they've been adapting their characteristics have uh, been changing so uh, so yeah, I thought uh, that's something I've been sort of looking at and it's also been inspiring some of our ideas as well for what we've been working on. If you were able to take a characteristic from any organism on Earth and put it into people, uh, what would it be and why? This could be a trait, it could be a physical thing, it could be uh, uh, whatever you want. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is actually what we were just talking about. Um, I think the splice um, from every species in whatever way um, to integrate into humans uh, of communication. Um, uh, that somehow we could communicate with uh, the rest of the natural world. Um, indeed, whether through um, language, electrical impulses, uh, um, uh, chemical processes. Um, but also trying to understand um, and I think have a have a deeper conversation with nature. Um, um, something that we always say in our work um, and always come across if you, if you focus on sort of compassion training and empathy training is that you know empathy is uh, far older than humanity. Um, and I've always sort of said that if we're able to talk um, uh, to the rest of the species, we would also uh, understand that. Um, and it would fundamentally change our, I think, our relationships with them. And so the field that you were talking about before, about sort of how do we increase those feedback loops for the natural world? How do we start to have a, like almost a Google Translate conversation uh, with other species um, is something that really excites me. 
Um, and I think the deeper we go into that, uh, I think the more cognizant we'll be of, uh, of, of yeah, our relationships uh, with the natural world. So are you optimistic about our relationship with the natural world and, and where we're heading with it? I mean, I think if we could talk to nature right now, it would not have some very nice words for us, um, to say the least. Um, you know, I think we are at this tipping point. Um, you know, being the climate change space, I know we are locked into a certain level of warming. Uh, we are locked in um, into, you know, we're in the midst of this great biological extinction. Um, um, so I'm realistic as well that, you know, there's many species we will never have a chance to have a relationship with. Um, uh, many patents, indeed, if you want to look at it that way, that will be lost in the natural world. A lot of uh, fantastic ideas. I always see it as, you know, the it's the equivalent of, um, you know, destroying a small piece of forest is the equivalent of destroying uh, tens of thousands of libraries of, of sort of knowledge. Um, so I'm, I'm realistic about what's already been sort of lost and what we're losing. Um, but I'm, I'm also hopeful still. Um, I think of you know, the conversations that we're having, the fact that um, we can even connect um, in such a way and have these kind of conversations, that there is this increasing movement, uh, um, that uh, we are starting to have the technology as well that can enable, I think, these uh, stronger relationships, but it's a case of making sure we channel it in the, in the right direction. Um, so I'm hopeful about the possibilities, um, I think, that are there. Um, I, I know the world is um, uh, still far better uh, and a far wondrous place in many ways than we've ever known it. Um, but, uh, um, but, yeah, I think we're in a transition point, um, I think, for, uh, for our species, as uh, I know many, uh, many people think, um, and, uh, and that we need to act on that hope and act on that optimism and what is possible uh, before, uh, before we lose that a bit more. If you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then back, where would you go? No, this is an easy one. Um, the International Space Station. Excellent. And why? Um, so I'm, uh, I'm a space geek as well. Um, but I've always been fascinated with this idea of the overview effect. Um, I don't know if you've sort of heard about it before, and it's something that um, astronauts often describe when they're seeing our planet from space. Um, and this overview effect is described as sort of experiences, feeling um, sort of in awe of the planet, of this profound understanding of the interconnection of all of life, and, um, and this uh, often renewed sense of responsibility for taking care of of the planet and the environment and just how fragile um, this small blue marble is suspended um, in the fast blank canvas of space. Um, and I've heard many astronauts sort of talk about this and how, um, you know, this effect and just this experience instantly helps people develop this um, sort of a global consciousness. Um, um, as well in a very unique way and uh, it's something that's uh, always touched my heart and I think uh, because it's turned astronauts often into poets um, that's something I'd love to experience for an hour I think I'd love for everyone to experience uh, um, for an hour and I know there's uh, some VR experiences some virtual reality experiences that are trying to um, help simulate that uh, but yeah for an hour I'd love the real thing mm. that's beautiful 
Thank you. Where can people find you online? Um, so for sort of 3BL Associates, you can search um, 3BL Associates and you'll find us on sort of Twitter. It's 3BLassociates.com. Um, if you also search my name, um, I'm there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, uh, you name it. Excellent. I'll, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes for anybody who's interested. And Tariq, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, this was you. a real it's pleasure. Been, it's been an absolute pleasure for me, and I hope uh, beyond the podcast we'll be able to, to connect with you as well. And that's a wrap on episode 12 with Tariq Alalami. You can find Life Centered on iTunes. And if you like what you heard, please do take a moment to give it a thumbs up, review, or comment. It does really help us out. The spring season of the podcast is in full swing, and there will be some great content in the next few months. It's a perfect time to send out links to your friends, family, relatives, or strangers if you think they might enjoy Life Centered. Thanks so much.